Welcome back, everybody. I'm Jonathan Bollinger. Thanks so much for joining us for another mini-episode here at Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. And if you've been listening uh, somewhat regularly recently, you know that we are very close to beginning our brand new season for the fall. So that's always exciting. And again, if you've been listening uh, pretty regularly, you know that we just released another Mining the Archive Monday uh, that one was the, uh, the fun one called Hard Sell, where Andrew and I talked about all the notorious uh, infomercials from the days of cable TV. So I hope you enjoyed that. And while we do try to have this podcast be sort of evergreen, right, meaning you can enjoy listening to it pretty much whenever, whether you're listening to it in real time or maybe a few months down the road or next year or something, uh, it's still nice to have some some sort of sense of time within these uh, within these shows. So uh, where we've been is we're finishing out the summer and the uh, Mining the Archive Monday uh, uh, offerings as well as these new mini episodes. And then starting next week, uh, September 7th, we will start releasing our brand new full episode season uh, along with still the Mining the Archive Mondays as well as the mini episodes. And if you choose to donate a little bit of money uh, over at Patreon, that's Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast over at patreon.com, you would get access to the full uh, archive of episodes as well as also brand new uh, Patreon-only bonus episodes. But if you're not that interested in the podcast, because Lord knows there's a lot of competition these days for podcasts, uh, you can just simply stay here uh, and listen to the main feed absolutely free. You'll always hear Mining the Archive Monday uh, free episodes from the past, as well as the new episodes coming for the new season. Okay, so what I want to do today was talk a little bit about a topic that is also uh, uh, in the news recently. But as you'll hear in just a few minutes, you'll notice that it'll it's always something that we've talked about, and that is uh, the strike that's happening within you know generally Hollywood, for lack of a better a better term. And I just wanted to first start off by making a few points, and then I'll get to the, the main point of what I, I want to discuss, or main subject of what I want to discuss today during this quick mini-episode. And that is, you know, we have a difficult history with, with labor, organized labor within the U.S., in that there's, you know, there's always this sort of uh, a dialogue or sense that, like, you know, oh, unions, they, uh, boy, they're, they're corrupt, or there's lots of infighting, or man, you have to pay a fee for membership, but they don't really do anything for you, and it's all a hassle, and blah, blah, blah. When the reality is, well, you certainly can point to certain, certain historical events where you can find instances of that. The fact of the matter is that within a labor environment, i.e. owner and worker, uh, when times are good, uh, yeah, it, it's great. We all want to work at good companies where it does feel like family, etc. And, and when times are good, it, it feels like that. But when things are bad, when things are rough, it's very easy for it to uh, revert to what it actually always is, which is you have an owner and you have a worker, and it reveals that sort of power dynamic. So one of my favorite examples of this from uh, history outside the media is Milton Hershey, you know, founder of, of the United States chocolate company Hershey's. And, you know, he was really, really pissed off when his workers attempted to unionize during the early 20th century 
because he felt sort of a paternal relationship to them. And, and that's fine, but, but in times that are good, but when it's bad, you really do need a representative. You need someone to sort of even the playing field for you so that you can receive the benefits, the living wage, etc., that you need as someone who trades their labor uh, for producing the product, etc. So the uh, the Hollywood version of it, you know, it always gets sort of sort of sort of uh, wacky when we think about it because as much as and particularly you guys who are listening to a TV history podcast, you know, you know this, but yet you sort of forget that, oh, yeah, these folks are all workers, essentially. Yes, they might be, you know, genetic freaks, meaning, you know, there's some actress out there who's actually only five foot even uh, and, and weighs next to nothing compared to the, the normal, uh, normal woman in, in U.S. society and has a, you know, gazillion gigawatt personality and charm and all this stuff. And we think of them and label them stars or different or unique or blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, they're just workers, right? They're workers trying to get a paycheck, etc. And so what we see in these situations currently are that we tend to think that everyone is in that situation. And the fact of the matter is they're not. They are just, there are more quote-unquote rank-and-file workers, i.e. people who show up for a line or two on an episode of TV, uh, someone who might do one little voiceover job on a cartoon, uh, someone who, at, if they're really, really lucky, maybe they do a guest starring role on a TV show, you know, once a year. Uh, that's the average person, right? Or, or they never even quite get that. So they're not rolling in money. And even those who are lucky enough to become the, you know, third banana on a TV show or get a really good third, third lead in a, in a film, you know, films are only 90 minutes. They're, they're finite. Uh, there's no guarantee for a sequel. Uh, uh, TV shows, you know, at these days they run six to eight episodes and there's no guarantee for another season, etc. So even if you are perceived as someone who is quote-unquote successful, nine times out of ten they're doing what anyone else would do, right? Which is you get you do get paid more in that situation, but it's not guaranteed it's crazy money. But let's pretend it's close to crazy money. You know, you're paying off your student loan. You're getting ahead on a car payment or buying a car. Or you are finally putting down that down payment for your first house or whatever, or condo. And then you're saving it, right? You're trying to live off the rest of that because, again, you don't know where the next job's going to happen. And eventually that money runs out. And hopefully you're lucky enough to get another guest starring shot on an episode. Or hopefully you get another series or whatever. But sometimes it doesn't happen. And so... What, you know, it's not a surprise then that you see that the, these articles where it's like, oh, did you know this former actor is doing this sort of what the kids call a side hustle? You know, this normal person job or, or maybe they're just teaching acting on uh, acting class or doing some sort of Zoom online acting thing or whatever, or a podcast. Who knows? But the point is, is that we need to get away from that idea that everyone's this multimillionaire living in Malibu or living in Santa Monica or Beverly Hills or something, and that most people who create the stuff that you and I both love are just regular old workers, albeit creative, funny, you know, charismatic, whatever, workers. So, you know, when we hear, understanding that, then when we hear the messages these days about, you know, this producer, this corporation, this studio... They want to be able to sign these workers to a contract where they get paid for the first thing that they do, 
but they're going to have the rights to their likeness, and they can put that likeness in using uh, audio manipulation, visual manipulation, CGI, whatever you want to call it, AI, you know, but not really compensate them for that. You know, that gets that gets difficult. Or if it's just the old school thing of you only get paid for the first time it's run, but now it can be downloaded thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of times here and there, but you're never going to get any sort of residuals from that, uh, from that creation of yours. That also can be problematic. So, I would just encourage you, and I'm, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir for some, for some, if not most of you, that uh, if you haven't really followed these kind of stories, just realize that you know there's only one Tom Cruise, right? There's only one Brad Pitt. There's only one, you know, Helen Mirren or or whoever. Uh, there's only one Tyler Perry. Uh, you know, most of the people who do this work are just like you and I, and they're just trying to work at what they like to do. Uh, to the best of their ability, get paid for it, and, uh, a- a- and would like to be treated as fairly as possible. So this brought me to the second part, and really the, the main subject I want to talk about today. And it made me think of something that I read recently, and so I'm just very briefly going to quote it to you, okay? It's very short. It goes like this. Hollywood is a union town. From the highest paid directors to the lowly electricians, Every group is organized. At labor rallies, it's glamorous stars and suave writers hobnob with carpenters and painters. The popular conception of Hollywood as a land of make-believe is a figment of the imagination. The true Hollywood is just as firmly rooted in reality as Middletown. For every shining star, there are thousands of little lights struggling to gain or keep a place. These men and women are interested in wages and hours, in working conditions, in union agreements, and in economic security. But there is always the touch of the unexpected which makes Hollywood unique, such as the occasional lack of parking space at union meetings. Now, the reason that I mention that is not because it was written in the 21st century, Rather, this is from the beginning of Murray Ross, who was an economist who studied labor, uh, back in 1941 in his book Stars and Strikes, Unionization of Hollywood, published by Columbia University Press. And his book covers the early unionization efforts within Hollywood. And I think it's really kind of enlightening to realize that someone writing in 1941 about the early sequences that happened roughly over a hundred years ago read as, well, pretty contemporary to what we're dealing with these days with the current labor movement. So I thought it'd be interesting just to give you a bit of a Cliff Notes version of that early history of unionization. Uh, Again, this is a mini episode, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But Ross really brings up some interesting ideas uh, and some history that I thought you might enjoy. So, for the first part is, of course, Hollywood is made up of four different types of, of, of workers. Uh, creative talent, you have your skilled professionals, those who edit or maybe those who do publicity, uh, studio technicians, and uh, craftsmen, you know, carpenters, machinists. Now realize craftsmen is Ross's word from 1941 because most of the industry was craftsmen, although if we're thinking about that today, it would be really craftspersons. 
And so what's interesting to me, although I guess it's obvious when you really think about it, is that unionization in Hollywood actually first began with that fourth category of craftsmen, uh, the carpenters, the machinists. And that back at the beginning of the 20th century, Los Angeles was actually really thought of as an anti-union, or to use the lingo of labor, an open shop town. And while films were made in L.A. as early as 1907, it wasn't actually until just after World War I that L.A. really became a prime center. Before that, New York City was actually still considered the center of production. But it was actually in 1916 that the American Federation of Labor first attempted to unionize in Hollywood. And as I mentioned, they focused solely on unionizing those craftspersons, or then craftsmen. And not surprisingly, (laughs) in its immediate response, 17 studios formed the Motion Picture Producers Association, or an anti-union or open shop group. And so once you have the American Federation of Labor working to unionize and the response of the Motion Picture Producers Association, during the next five years, the studios then experienced three strikes. The first was in July 1918, when 500 studio craftsmen went on strike for a wage increase. It got so bad that the U.S. Department of Labor had to step in, and the strike ended in September with a compromise settlement on the wage dispute. But producers, quote, remained adamant on the open shop issue, end quote. Meaning, they'll give you a wage increase, but they're not going to go full union yet at that point. And then next, and I don't have a year here for this, but Ross mentions there was a, quote, less spectacular strike of cameramen, end quote. Uh, So since he doesn't delve too far into that, I assume that was a relatively minor skirmish that resolved relatively easily. But then exactly three years later, after the first strike in July 1921, again, some studio craftsmen uh, uh, went on strike, They were protesting a post-war wage reduction, and another compromise was reached. Because at that time, unlike other post-war industries, Hollywood was actually still booming. And so they really weren't weren't affected by sort of the post-war deflation uh, uh, affecting the the outside industries. So again, if if times are are good, you're willing to sort of, you know, uh, play ball a little bit. Now... What was really interesting is that before that first strike in July of 1918, after the American Federation of Labor started up, there was already a second unionization effort underway. But instead of it being the American Federation of Labor, it was actually one of their affiliates, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees and Moving Picture Machine Operators. (laughs) That's a mouthful. and they attempted to form one large union for all craftsmen. Ultimately, this effort died due to territorial infighting amongst the different unions. It was both the alliance uh, against the American Federation of Labor and also more generally larger national unions against uh, various local chapters. And unfortunately, this competition over territory and memberships dragged on until 1925 and 1926, 
when during those years the Alliance began agreements with their competitor unions. Because at this point they all now started to really understood, understand rather that they stood a much better chance against the studios and the producers uh, together than by themselves. Well, again, not surprisingly, now that they were presenting a unified front and its resultant power to strike and shut down productions across multiple departments, wouldn't you know it, the producers signed their names on November 26, 1926, to the first union agreement, or what was then known in layperson's terms as the Studio Basic Agreement document. And at that time, it was five major unions and nine major studios who signed uh, off on it. And so after 1926, this brought a relatively consistent era of peace for the industry due in part to the industry's strong economics and prosperity. The fact that they really didn't face much competition and that the costs associated with paying the craftspersons actually accounted for very little of the overall costs of making a motion picture. So while certainly squabbles uh, uh, came across, you know, in those years, the general success and high profit margins allowed the piece to be kept relatively easily. So I'm not going to go on and on here because, again, it's just a mini episode, but I thought that was very interesting that the unionization process started so early and it seemed to just mimic all the same sort of uh, fights and ideas that we have these days, even though the methods of creating content, of course, have changed, right? Then they were talking about physical sets and eventually physical lighting, right, and set design, uh, etc. Whereas these days we're talking more about people who are cramped inside some sort of computer room, staring at a screen, uh, doing visual effects on fixed bids for some sort of TV show or film. And uh, once, of course, all the changes are requested by producers, thus upping the amount of time and labor and money that would be needed to uh, enact those changes, uh, no more money is coming because, again, that bid is fixed, right? That it was agreed upon in the beginning. Or the idea of we not only want to, uh, as we did in the old days, just pay you less and less for sequels uh, or, or reruns, now it's eh, maybe we'll pay for you for the first one, but now we signed away, you've signed your away your likeness as part of the contract, contractual agreement, well, now we'll just do some audio approximation of your voice, or we'll just do a CGI approximation of your, of your figure, uh, so you're sort of kind of in it, in a way that's cheap and easy for us, and in a way that we control the performance uh, uh, less so than you. And, and lots of different examples there, but just, just a few there about how the methods might have changed, but the power struggle remains and the fact that we want fair compensation or they want fair compensation for the labor that they're putting in. So I found Ross's work very interesting. And I think honestly down the road uh, for a new full episode, I might do more of a deeper historical dive into uh, the various strikes and, and other sort of uh, labor wars that have happened within television uh, uh, over the ensuing decades. Uh, obviously, I realize it's a bit of a, a daunting task because not only are those association names mouthfuls, but there's a lot of them. There's a lot of infighting, and you kind of need a scorecard to kind of keep keep sense of everything. So, so I do realize it, it is a bit convoluted. But if I can find a, an interesting story way to uh, uh, you know present that to you, 
I, I certainly will, because I think it's a, a fascinating topic. So looking at our time here, I don't want to keep you longer than I absolutely have to, because if you've listened this far with me on the mini episode, I do appreciate it. Just remind you again that our new full season will be starting next week, September 7th. So uh, just simply watch in this same main feed and you'll get the new episode. But uh, also consider, you know, old school podcast stuff like rate and review us. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it does help. Uh, If you look on, I know on Apple, we have some nice reviews on there uh, that can help turn people on to the show. And maybe just old school word of mouth. If you know if you have a friend who's into media, media history, tell them to consider checking out a mini episode or or one of our our older archive episodes. And uh, if you really want a lot of content from us, again, consider possibly donating a dollar or two uh, to get access to the full archive and the new, brand new bonus episodes that will also be released uh, during our new season. Okay? So for all that, I'll simply say for Steve Voorhees and Andrew J. Salvati, I'm Jonathan Bullinger. Thanks again for uh, listening to us, and we will catch you down the road. Thanks again. Bye-bye.